to Urban Next Exchanges, a podcast by UrbanNext.net, the digital platform that aims to expand architecture to rethink cities. You are listening to an episode from Nature of Enclosure, a series hosted by Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, exploring the status of enclosure in the design fields and its impact on contemporary forms of capital, culture and politics. have arrived at our eighth and final session of our mini-series entitled The Nature of Enclosure. Within this series, we have discussed topics such as sealed environments, gardens and greenhouses, biological environments and air quality, and capital enclosures from the architectural and to the territorial scale. The series intentionally includes over 24 scholars from a range of diverse fields and disciplines including design, architecture, landscape, urbanism, geography, technology, science, sociology, and history. In this final session of the series, we, we meet with scholars whose work converges at the intersection of questions of power, land, and territory as it relates to the revealing deep cultural and political forms for how nature became commodified and enclosed. In his book, Birth of Territory, Stuart Eldon writes, territory cannot simply be understood as the political economic notion of land, nor even as a political strategic sense of terrain, but instead comprises the techniques used to, among other elements, measure land and control and manage terrain. Territory as a mode of power embedded in colonialism maintains and consistently strives for boundaries of legibility. However, history shows that when these power structures are contested, transformed, and absorbed, so do the conditions within such bounded regions. If we accept such political evolutions of land to occur, then the territory itself tends to become manipulated and altered across diverse heterogeneous arrangements. But where in the process does landscape and cardiographic mapping practices enclose territory and prompt state legibility aspirations? We are joined today by Mishana Gwoman, Julia Smatchelow, and Joshua Nason. Dr. Mishana Gwoman, Tanawanda Band of Seneca, is an Associate Professor of Gender Studies, Chair of American Indian Studies Interdepartmental Program, and Associate Director of American Indian Studies Research Center at UCLA. Her research involves thinking through colonialism, geography, and literature in ways that generate anti-colonial tools in the struggle, struggle for social justice. She is the author of Mark My Words, Native Women Mapping Our Nations from the University of Minnesota Press in 2013, and currently a co-PI on a community-based digital project entitled Mapping Indigenous LA that works towards creating a self-represented storytelling, archival and community-oriented maps that unveil multi-layered indigenous LA landscapes. Julia Smatchelow is an urban designer as well as a registered urban planner in Canada and the UK and currently completing her doctoral dissertation at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. Her research responds to an increased awareness and shift towards valuing natural capital in research and policy as well as the growing influence of non-state actors, such as environmental organizations, landowners, and the private sector, in shaping landscapes in response to climate change. 
Julia is the co-editor of New Geography's 10 Fallow and also the author of Agents of Design, Incentivized Conservation in Southern Ontario's Private Forests, recently published in Wood Urbanism, From the Molecular to the Territorial. And thirdly, Joshua Nason, Associate Professor at, uh, in the School of Architecture at the University of Texas in Arlington. Josh teaches courses in design, urbanism, theory, and uses analytic mapping methods for exploring the multivalent relationships that comprise contextual structures and cultural codependencies. Such investigations have included on-site research throughout North America and Asia, including more recently, his studio on the National Park Service. Focusing on rigorous iterative design processes, his goal is to explore the superimposition of design components, meaning, and the inevitable effects of the fabrics and cultures in which they exist. Josh and I also co-edited the book, Chasing the City, Models for Extra-Urban Investigations by Rutledge with Rutledge in 2018. Mishana, Julia, Josh, thank you all for being here. The format for today's session, as usual, is organized in three parts, two provocations, a response, and discussion. I'll first invite Mishana to initiate today's session by offering her insights on the conflicted structural relationship between racial geopolitics and maps used for colonization on land, followed by Julia's provocation as power relates to the management, commodification, and conservation of land. Afterwards, we'll hear a formal response from Josh and open it up for discussion. Mishuana, the virtual floor is yours. I have been recently traveling throughout my home territories on Tanawanda Bando Seneca, and I traveled from there to Maine. So this, this kind of uh, uh, discussion about what is the nature of enclosure for me also includes questions about what does presence mean to me? What does it mean um, to be present in one's own territory that kind of defies a nature of enclosure that's been implemented through colonial structures? So I was traveling to my homelands, Haudenosaunee Territory, and what you might recognize is Upper State New York after quarantining in Maine, a place I grew up close to the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy, people of the dawn. Upon entering my territories, I smelled the clean air of rivers and pine and damp earth. I went down the river with my family, that's what we call it, going down the river, and remembered all those places we gathered fiddleheads, so what they refer to as ramps and the fancier restaurants of LA where I'm now located on Tavangar, uh, that is Tanva territory in the Tanva world. In Salamanca, I walked in the gathering places of sweetgrass and again remembered what it felt, truly felt, to have embodied sovereignty. That is a form of sovereignty that through my lifeline and presence in my territory reaches far deeper than the racial identifiers and government approved concepts of sovereignty that limits one and encloses them in bounded territories of racialized landscapes and property logics. That is my embodied sovereignty, my indigenous mobility, my ability to move between territories and follow the past of my ancestors is also the ability to reach far beyond those politics of enclosure. It is to understand the land and water as connected, not that which is divided, in that your presence on the land relies on understanding that you are a touch point of responsibility and accountability to the gifts that we have all been given. 
I see the presence of my people throughout New York with place names everywhere that reflect the power of place and language, even if that power is lost, that power of place, that power of embodied sovereignty is lost to a majority of Americans. One river memory connected to another, and I felt the presence of my childhood, my ancestors, and my family. This is far, goes far beyond um, what is legible to the state as Indian or native peoples who must acquiesce to what I've referred to in my former works as a settler grammar of place. That is a grammar of place that relegates Indian nations to the spaces um, left to the settler imaginary. Predictably, this, these are um, only exist as relics of vanishing culture with no political or effective relationship to occupied land. The effective relationship I'm trying to map out by talking about my own travels as I move about. So I also, to be clear, began writing these remarks during the weekend commemoration of the Kinsua Dam removal in the 1960s. Seneca people did not let the subsuming of our home sites to damned waters happen without a fight, but did their best to oppose it through the legal mechanism. That is, they worked within the treaty, the living treaty of 1794, the, um, the Canandaiga treaties. Treaties, even the so-called lost ones in California, are a living presence to us that continue to shape the US, Canada, Mexico nation states across the US and across North America. They shape states across US formed post treaty making era. They shape our universities as, as has recently been divulged in the Land Grab University uh, article. They shape the towns and cities you all come from in all lands across North America. Treaties are our treaties, particularly Haudenosaunee treaties that are enacted yearly still. They are a presence that are made invisible through a manipulative hand of settler colonialism education, and really a politics of enclosure. But these treaties, we have treaties amongst each other, as Heidi Stark lays out in her work out of University of Victoria, we have treaties among each other that far existed the treaties between the US and Native nations or Canada and Native nations. And these treaties are uh, essential to our understanding of how we relate to each other. So I, I, when I think about the nature of enclosure, I think about how treaties either to each other as native nation to native nation or as uh, US nation to, to native nations. These treaties are that which is the an invisible presence in the nature of enclosure. They defy that nature of enclosure. So as I think about this, I encounter enclosure. I also thought about removal and all the ways Indians become enclosed in settler property logics. As I cross Corn Planters Bridge, which is a commemoration for the village that was flooded, I feel the power of dispossession, but the presence of also of knowing that deep, deep history. As I walk into the Seneca Nation's modern building, modern architecture with powerful Seneca aesthetics and purpose, I feel that power of survivance. The building is absolutely beautiful. And that power is deeply tied to us Seneca people as being present on the land outside that logics of enclosure. When I cross the nation and travel back and forth across country, I see the power and presence of all native nations as I travel. And that itself defies these logics of enclosure. Reservations became these sites of enclosures, literally some of the first open air prisons in the United States. 
that they, but they have also become synonymous with Indian home sites. And I think this is important to note because we make place and we make um, relationships happen within those places. That also defies those sets of enclosures. So from the start, the reservation was patrolled by the military and the Indian agents. The same happened with reserves in Canada. The Indian agents had immense power in these places. Uh, thus making, um, thus reservations and reserves are the controlling of us through past systems where we had to have a pass to leave to hunt for food, to formulate and continue our relationships with the land and hunting and gathering. What happens in this moment is um, Indian mobility becomes dangerous, especially as whole states such as Oregon and Colorado who embraced the planning tools of white supremacy to affirm rights to property taken by force. I think about Oregon at, at this moment that is in uprise, and I think about those original urban planning of making Oregon a white state and how we have not actually delved into that in a larger uh, discussion. So these landscapes were not naturally settled, was, nor were they coincidentally done so by white settlers. Rather, the best lands which had been tilled by generations of Native women and men were delved out to those who had favor with the Indian agents or the, um, or the Indian Affairs offices. Post-Civil War, when Black people were freed and Indian lands were opened up to help the markets of a devastated U.S. nation that was deeply in debt, these lands were not given over to freed Blacks or um, or, in, or Indian people. Rather, they were pushed out of those boundaries and they're given over to poor whites as a recompensation for the deep um, battle that the Civil War had called. I often wonder what would have happened if during that time, um, the dispossession of Indian land uh, was, was thought of or planned out differently. There are legal boundaries with laws that aptly um, apply differently to Native people. Many of these colonial laws have led to increased violence, however, these boundaries of enclo enclosure against Native peoples. We see this with Sarah Deer's work, which, which I highly recommend, or Jennifer Dennettdale, who's writing on border towns, what it means to have a nature of enclosure, but one that isn't as tightly modulated as in the, in the 1860s to 1900s with um, Indian people leaving off and on the res, but are now modulated by police and state violence in other ways and vigilante violence in those border towns. We also can think about the economic poverty that's caused in these places and the food deserts um, um, also. Uh, Professor Randall Aki at UCLA addresses these quite a bit. So while we must engage with the legal ramifications of our enclosure daily, our embodied sovereignty, however, defies the logics as we move across and with the land. Just as in the case of Kinzua Dam, the civil planning of damming and the New Deal continued to bolster the white town economies over honoring treaties. The presence of this is there and it still continues as we witnessed at Standing Rock when they changed the direction of the pipeline from Bismarck that would affect the white towns to outside of the reservation, which could destroy our relationship to those lands forever. Or in Canada, we see with the Mi'kmaq struggles right now that are ongoing, and in the Northwest as tribes fight mining in order to save the salmon's life and their own lives in, in turn. 
So here I recall my uncle's words who reminded me that it was not us protecting the land sovereignty, but the land protecting our sovereignty. And it is fighting for these embodied sovereignties, our, our ability to have these embodied sovereignties outside of logics of enclosure that become important and necessary as we move forward. When we think about territory, it is too often done in relation to property logics. These logics themselves are undergirded by these other forms of destructive logics, such as patriarchy and racial logics. For many Indigenous peoples, sovereignty in land is not necessarily linked to the law, but in that relationships we have. In other words, the animal nations, for instance, are part, they have their own relationship to the land and to the territory. So when we think about territory, it is something seemingly, at times when people think about territory, it is something seemingly stable acted upon, not acted in concert with the non-human. It is not a shared relationship, but merely the legal traces of human. It doesn't see waterways, animals, and all of nature having its own way of making place in this world. It is taking for granted that it is the natural state of things to own or possess. But as Casey Park puts forth in a uh, puts forth in an upcoming piece, she reminds us that quote, while the English word property still retains the meaning of quality or trait belonging to a thing from its old French derivation, derivation it's more dominant use now to signify a thing owned or possession. Appears to have been rare before the 17th century. During that century, when the English colonization project came into full bloom. The Anglo adaption of this term made the second usage common. The parameters of, quote, things that could be owned under English law expanded dramatically, and what it meant to own or possess them underwent a sea of change in the colonies. So that is from Casey Park, but who uh, unpacks the, relation, the um, definition of the word um, property. It is the very dispossession of our lands and our embodied sovereignty as indigenous and black people who are indigenous to their lands in Africa that led to this concept change of property. By normalizing this violence, again, Kesu says, by normalizing this violence to the capture and subjugation of African people and the theft of native nations lands, colonists created a violent and thoroughly racialized order within that property that continues to circulate. And again, we see this continue to circulate in the recent racial uprisings in the ways that it gets touted as, uh, as, um, as anti-American, for instance. So when territory and Indians become involved, there also becomes an enclosure of temporality. Often we also need to talk about this temporality. That is, as Indian people, we are enclosed in the past. The Seneca people even went so far to create an alternative plan directing the waters. I will say that again, that would not displace these families. So despite the Kinsawood Dam displacement and violent enforcement of eminent domain by the US law having taken place in our living relatives time, in the 1960s, again under Kennedy, the general public views Indians owning or having land or being on land as antiquated and nostalgic past. We often see this in the rebuttal of why should Indians have sovereignty? Why can't they just become American? And these sorts of ways, um, we see that the enclosure of temporality of Native people as though dispossession has only occurred in the far past. Kennedy broke the oldest of treaties, not in that distant past, but in 1961. 
The enclosures of settler modernity cannot reconcile with the demands for hashtag land back as these claims are viewed as stemming from that moment of contact in 1492. The ongoing dispossession, however, the flooding, pipeline, selling of dis disputed parklands to mining companies, and use of the law to limit extending reservation land to be protected by sovereign tribal nations, are just a few examples of how settler temporalities enclose land into private property and into seeking limitations of the ownership itself. Meredith Palmer addresses this temporality enclosure in a recent essay in Society and Space, and what she talks about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's ruling against the Oneida Nation based on a doctrine of discovery and based on an enclosure of temporality. So the worst nature of enclosure, however, is in how we think and engage with each other, with land and with the non-human. This enclosure forms a hierarchy that dismisses previous ways of understanding our roles or prohibits future ways of engaging and relating to each other. Amal is very concerned about how we can relate and engage with each other outside of the colonial constructs of enclosure. Mohawk artist and scholar Deborah Dockstadter reminds us that the biggest lie they could have us believe is that our political, moral, and societal organizing is part of the primitive and it doesn't matter in this modern day. Dockstarter profoundly ask, quote, will Euro-based societies form the frame of our thought and creativity or will we be able to see through the surface predomination to something more? Again, I think of this something more, especially as I travel through my home territories and come across a porcupine recently hit and left in the road. My daughter is renewing beating in our family and asks us to stop. As we gather the lifeless form and spend the morning harvesting the quills for earrings, I think about this creature's presence and the presence of our ancestors. The quill tradition in the Northeast connects traditions to other traditions uh, across the Northeast. Um, it also is a tradition that produces thought, creativity, structures outside those natures of enclosure and can be a point of storytelling. My mom begins to pull out ermine tails and vintage beads for her granddaughter. She hasn't beaded in years. And she begins to unravel stories told to her by my great grandmother as her personal confidant. This is my great grandmother who was born during the time of Wounded Knee, who talked about the fear she had as an indigenous, as a native woman traveling, uh, uh, traveling around anywhere. She was, she, she was always had a deep distrust and it was, partly from where and the place she was born, the time and place she was born. So these stories are not present, these stories not present are always on the surface waiting. And as we connect with the life of the porcupine at this moment, killed through technology and mass development, porcupine quills are getting harder and harder to come by because of uh, the destruction of uh, forest trees. We begin to connect with each other <laughs> and honor these connections in ways that other state is not relevant in today's society. Yet these reciprocal relationships are the something more that Doc Starter refers to, that as Native people have helped us survive the destruction of our ancestors, our lands, and the flooding of our villages, and provide pivotal information on how to do so for the future. The nature of relationships that look at connection, that look for a meaningful presence of being, are necessary for all of us to see the repercussions of not paying attention 
to the presence and connections of land, water, and the non-human. We must pay attention to them in our human connections as well, and especially in our non-human connections. So creating a presence not trapped, pigeonhole, or enclosed in settler logics of settler logics of these enclosures is pertinent and necessary for everyone. Most of all, I think this means moving us forward with creating a presence with purpose and intention and in relation to each other. Mishana, thank you so much. Um, wow. I, I, um, first of all, I think there's a lot we can discuss. Uh, and one of the things that's clear is that we need to be um, collaborating with you much more than we do. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot to learn from you and you're clearly, um, you've said something so um, powerful and poetic. Uh, and so I, I truly thank you for being here and sharing, sharing these stories uh, and these, these uh, provocations that I think are um, important important for for not not only all fields to to recognize but certainly in our design discourse um, so it's nice to have you uh, have you enter into this uh, discussion um, there, there's a few things I could I keep going and I, I don't want to because I want to keep us moving along but I just want to pick up a couple quick just one quick thing I guess and that is you, you've you've pointed to this aesthetic as presence and beautifully said and and i i just want to use that as an indicator for perhaps we can we can come back to that um back to that later because i think that will resonate pretty well with um with those of us from the design fields but um thank you um i guess now if we want to shift over to julia and you can uh, proceed when you're ready my research looks at the changing institutional structures and powers of the state in relation to forest conservation as well as urban growth uh, within this broader framing, I'm particularly interested in the trend towards incentivized uh, environmental programs. I'm looking at forestry as an example um, in urbanizing areas that are uh, activating landowners and their sort of abilities to protect and manage landscapes. So this research focuses on southern Ontario, uh, which is coincidentally where I'm from, uh, and uh, this is also the traditional territory of several First Nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, uh, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Um, and this is a region that's currently um, faced with competing pressures for urban growth and also environmental conservation. And by looking at these provincial incentive programs that promote sort of an active and management and uh, stewardship of forested lands. Um, I'm really interested in uh, sort of how this translates from sort of a top down and bottom up and sort of how these meet in the center and, and what we can learn from looking at both sort of state ideas and state sort of eligibility acts and then what the grounded realities of these places are. Um, and what's, what's interesting about these programs is that they, uh, they're intertwined with property and how property is defined and they give a significant tax property tax reduction as a result uh, of this stewardship. Uh, they also changed the classification of these lands from whatever they were before to a managed forest class for as long as these lands remain in the program. So within uh, my research I'm arguing that uh, increasing attention needs to be given to the stewardship practices of landowners and also the spatial implications of these programs within this neoliberal conservation model. And through my fieldwork, which is 
uh, involved walking uh, within these forest lands with landowners. Not a, not a bad topic to spend the last four years doing every summer, going and walking through these forested lands. Uh, part of this research has been documenting the diversity of these forested environments, uh, different landowner management practices, and to really understand how incentivized management is playing out according to sort of specific socio-spatial conditions, uh, also with attention given to sort of who is benefiting and who is being excluded. Um, in terms of how this research aligns with the theme of enclosure, it's been a really interesting exercise for me. I was talking with Jeffrey and, and Joshua a little bit before about how I'm sort of reaching the, the end of my dissertation, and this has really been a refreshing way of me coming back to some of my writing. Um, because when we're talking about land, we're talking about the organization rights of access, of allocation, and these forested landscapes within Southern Ontario, uh, they've already been enclosed through ongoing practices of settler colonialism. So within this context, uh, and in relation to my work on incentivized landscapes, I see these programs as adding an additional layer, one that overlaps and works with these imposed systems of property rights. Um, and that, that's sort of my, my way into to enclosure, and I'll maybe talk through a little bit more of how I see this as both an abstract system, which I think Mishana sort of gets into these invisible logics that you were talking about, and then the grounded realities of sort of practice and how some of these programs allow for uh, engagement with the land that wasn't really there before. So with the piece that I shared with the group earlier in the week, um, it's the piece I thought most explicitly addressed the theme of enclosure because it really looks at the role of taxation in providing a kind of abstracted programmatic overlay. Um, and this work draws inspiration from literature on the dynamics of taxation uh, in terms of its role of impacting spatial qualities of the built and unbuilt environment. And in particular, scholars in the field of political ecology that argue that law, space, nature, and property are co-produced. So in particular, I've been drawing from scholars who offer critical perspectives in regard to ecosystem services markets and the use of conservation easements that have become uh, popular as policy solutions to addressing environmental issues. And for instance, I've been looking at scholars such as Kelly Kay, who worked, uh, who's looked at sort of conservation easements and access, as well as Robertson and Wetland Bank, where he's looking at sort of the spatial implications of, uh, of those programs. I've also found Alvaro Sevilla's work particularly useful in his writing on enclosure, where he argues that the spatial dimension of enclosure has often been ignored. Um, and he also positions enclosure as sort of a spatial process, the one that functions through capital accumulation, as well as specific spatial forms at scales from both the body up to the territory. So that's been a really interesting way of me getting into sort of what the spatial logics of these programs are in terms of incentivized management. So bringing this all back to my sort of object of study, I'm looking at enclosure in this case in two senses. One at a more abstract level in terms of the notion of a property's bundle of rights, where I look at how these programs and uh, the environmental policy surrounding them are creating a kind of invisible layer, a kind of policy metastructure, which to a certain extent directs how these programs play out both at a site-based scale but also at a larger territorial scale. In terms of sort of uh, the rules of thumbs up these programs, I look at how these legal elements of property are giving rise to a form of ecological accounting that has real spatial impact. So part of where I come in um, and part of, I guess, my background as a designer is 
sort of thinking through these programs, uh, both sort of a review of the grain literature as well as through interviews and with a connection with walking with landowners, starting to diagram what these dynamics are and making these sort of invisible logics that are structuring these spaces visible. And then secondly, in a more concrete sense and through my field work, um, this has given me insight into the actually existing grounded configurations of these programs, uh, where what seems at sort of this more abstract layer as more clear cut um, mutates to a certain degree when it encounters the messy complexity of each site. And this is where both the material landscape and the labor involved in stewardship activities um, seem to exist along a, a spectrum of uh, maybe what the state thinks it's uh, direct, uh, putting out there in terms of these programs and what actually is happening. And so it's really interesting to learn from this actual implement, implementation in terms of to what extent are these programs and the active management that's involved with them following uh, sort of the, the regular, the, what the state wants and how much are they being bent and broken and how can we learn from these practices uh, as sort of planners and designers and sort of see how we might use it in envisioning sort of alternative futures and ways of sort of using this policy in various ways uh, to address issues such as climate change or to sort of subvert the practices as well. Um, so I guess I'm sort of coming up to the end, but there was a couple of, uh, I guess, questions that engaging with this uh, theme of enclosure brought up uh, that I'm hoping to sort of lead into further in my, in my work. And one was sort of how environmental incentive programs seen here as adding sort of this extra layer in regard to property rights within neoliberal modes of conservation become an instrument for accumulation. Um, in addition, I was thinking about how these programs, which primarily exist on private property, complicate understandings of enclosure in relation to the commons. Um, also in terms of uh, enclosure as uh, sort of providing a more homogeneous space versus in some cases, actually these programs providing maybe a more heterogeneous space uh, than what was there before. Secondly, um, this theme also got me thinking about how the concept of enclosure has real impacts on both the material impacts, but also the social practices that are taking place in these spaces. Um, however, at the same time, when we're talking about ecological systems and sort of the drawing of boundaries, this needs to be problematized because you know, ecological systems are systems, they're just that, they're not discrete units that can be broken down. Same with property, it's all sort of a, it's an abstract notion that this can be bounded and, and set in motion. So, and this is where like scholars such as Becky Mansfield and her analysis on property and nature society relations has been really useful because she's arguing that these are fictional notions of nature, which see nature as a unique object that can be broken down into bits and owned, which in reality is, is not case. So here we run up against a disconnect between sort of the representation of these spaces and then their actual functioning as systems that exist beyond the boundaries of the site. This is really great. Uh, and I think for a few reasons. One, that there's clearly some overlapping uh, points that we could address in terms of certainly property. Uh, I think both of you have, have mentioned uh, questions about property, changes of property, and property simply being a, a perhaps a form of both tempora temporality, but also uh, a form of, of certainly um, commodifying, commodifi commodification for the sake of power. 
Um, and so perhaps we can, we can get back to that as well. The other thing that um, just quickly that seems to overlap here is that in both, in both cases, we've seen questions about connectivity and networks. Um, and, and that also, you know, you ended just recently, Julia, with um, ecological systems not really having uh, definitive boundaries, basically. And, and therefore, it's a false narrative to understand certain systems as uh, particularly enclosed. Josh, why don't we um, kick it over to you and you can uh, initiate the, uh, the kind of response and we'll, we'll move to discussion after that. So as I sit here in a pile of notes, surrounded by thoughts, I, three words just continue to come up for me. Beautiful, enlightening, thrilling, and a fourth one, compelling. Um, as I, I hope that I can do justice as I'm, I'm listening and as I've been through your work over the last uh, little bit for each of you, Julia and Mishana. Um, but I want to express gratitude to you for your work and for your work in the way that you represent stewardship and advocacy through the work and an enlightenment where a policy and people potentially have a, a better relationship with the land. Uh, and so I, I, I want to just express some gratitude for being here with you and learning from you and Jeffrey for putting this together. I also want to take a second and uh, I'm obliged to thank my brilliant uh, research assistant, Rachel Barrett, who has really helped a lot in putting together some of the work that I'm doing right now. And I want to give just a really, really quick introduction to why I'm here and why Jeffrey invited me to be a part of this. Uh, I recently really not recently, but I lately have been looking into uh, national parks and not just national parks as in the national park system, but national lands through the different entities of the government. And it's, it began with just an interest and a love for the landscape and for the wild. Um, and as I started to look into this, both in design studio classes and then in my own research and reading, I started to actually realize that while I, I still so hold some value to what Ken Burns said, the national parks is America's greatest idea or best idea, there also is a particularly difficult set of policies and histories in regard to the national parks, particularly in how lands were collected and how lands have been defined and so-called um, conserved or restored. And it is not a clean history. It is not a history that really represents all of the peoples and all of the animals and landscapes that have been a part of those lands. And it does start to reflect some of the overlap, which I think we're all talking about in a way, and forgive me if I'm overstating this, but this idea that the strangeness of the possession of land. And, and historically in the US, we have this, this sayings, right? Like we stake a claim or we plant a flag and it really does relate back to these colonial notions of land is owned or land is a possession, as both of you have talked about, um, both personally and politically. And it makes me start to think of sovereignty at the service of neoliberalism and neoliberalism at the service, at the service of sovereignty, the kind of interrelated nature of these two things and how it basically starts to commodify the land. It starts to commodify the, the thing that we share, the thing that connects all of us is this land. And I think both of you, uh, Jeffrey pointed this out, I kept writing down the word connection over and over and over again in terms of um, connections beyond boundaries, whether those boundaries are literal or whether those are political fiat boundaries. Um, and there's this idea that that which is boundaryless is actually that which is shared 
and yet we continue to commodify land by creating boundaries. If you think back to feudal times, right, that a kingdom was basically a defined enclosure set amongst the wild, that the wild was what happened outside of the walls of culture or, or inhabitation. I shouldn't say culture, sorry, but that it's, we build a wall to keep civilization in. And it seems that we've flipped that, that now we build a wall around the wild and the wild is actually what is being bounded at this moment. Um, and we have this flip of the inside outside condition where now the wild is the inside and around it is not necessarily a wall per se, but a series of boundaries and civilizations that keep wild pinned in, therefore making it not wild. And I think we have this a strange way of drawing these political boundaries and building these physical boundaries around this thing that is connective, that is collective. Um, and for me, I find that interesting. I also find that troubling uh, in the way that we have now bounded everything as it relates to the land, as it relates to people. And Mishana, as you were talking about land and water and non-humans as well. Uh, that there's a lot more that's going on here. And I, I see connectedness as a, as a theme through each of your work. Mishana, um, the connectedness, I, you've said that the air we breathe is a sign of connectedness, right? That that is beyond boundary. And Julie, as you start to talk about um, these uh, tax moves, these incentives, it, you really start to actually propose and question and talk about the relationships of all of the layered entities and peoples and structures that need to deal with one another as these incentives are then laid out, right? That uh, those relationships are also beyond boundary uh, because some of this land is contested. Some of this land has overlapping boundaries um, and boundaries that change. An example of this currently and how boundaries and definitions change, and this is from my work, uh, it actually is reflected in a, an article in um, National Geographic that just came out last week. It's written by Erica Gies. And it talks about this uh, elk species, the smallest species of elk, the tule elk in the United States, which has been restricted to this one grassland uh, park, essentially called Point Reyes National Seashore. And also in that land is cows. And a lot of agricultural work is going on. And the National Park is considering multiple proposals on how to deal with this balance. And one of the proposals actually includes approval to exterminate this elk. It would essentially make this breed of elk extinct in order to provide more ag agricultural land. And there's this constant conflict that we continue to try to draw boundaries around instead of understanding that there's potentially a flow and a relationship and an interdependence between these different kinds of systems. Julia, something that you wrote recently um, in New Geographies, in Fallow, really has struck a chord with me along these terms. And I might be extrapolating this, and I would appreciate if, if once we start to reconvene, if you could offer more insight and potentially some correction on this. But the idea of Fallow, the idea of a pause, like what would the role or what would the productivity of a pause be in terms of us always charging forward and defining and drawing boundaries and enclosing things, how could potentially an intellectual, a cultural, even a social pause on some of these movements actually allow us to figure out the connectedness and the integrated nature of this? 
Um, I'm not quite sure that a pause is necessarily realistic or possible, you know, a whole a wholesale pause, but there is this notion of full steam ahead that is colonial, um, that is sort of cultural and neoliberal at the same time. And I think is putting us in, in some rough positions as we try to capitalize on the land and commodify the land. And as we talk about things like property logics and we talk about um, allocation, enclosure, um, all of these kinds of things, I wonder if a step back actually, as simple as it may sound, would help us to understand that maybe it's not about ownership or possession, maybe it's about sharing. I absolutely love that the volume of new geographies that I worked on with Mike Shafello. Um, and I don't want to go into a deep dive because I could talk for, for ages about uh, that volume, but really fallow was something that we were using as sort of a metaphor, um, looking at processes of uh, sort of devaluation and revaluation and really getting at like fallow was sort of this hinge moment within these processes that brought attention to sort of the moment of the hinge, but also the process as well. And we had a couple authors who really looked at enclosure within this context. So again, Alvaro Sevilla uh, was looking at enclosure in this context in both England and the US, where he's looking at how fallowness, how this uh, adding of value through time, through a sort of waiting that's an active replenishment was replaced by sort of an ide ideology of improvement and what that sort of abandonment of uh, fallow and sort of leaving the land has, has meant. Um, and what I really think comes from his work is the land dimension, but also the labor dimension in this and the enclosure of both of those. Um, also, we had a couple authors, uh, Jacobs and Carnes, were looking at a comparative analysis between Singapore where there's, uh, the state is using land banking as a way of like really just sitting on land until it develops in the future versus say in Jakarta where there's sort of a hybrid governance model. So this is where sort of governance comes in and how different models sort of instigate uh, different ways in which enclosure happens and sort of the, the maybe the extent or the limits of what fallow means in different contexts. And maybe it also brings attention to the extent of what enclosure uh, means in certain contexts and how it's how it's applied. Um, there's a lot of stuff that came up. I really was interested in sort of this connection to the collective uh, of collecting landscape and also Joshua your point about sort of policies and sort of are they positive are they negative and it's really gets um, it really gets complicated and I think that's again where from my own background my own research sort of the tools that I'm bringing in terms of sort of reading and reading into these policies and practices through diagramming also through a lot of my field work i've been using video as a way of documenting process uh, so that's sort of bringing that temporal aspect michana in 2013 you did an interview with andrew epstein and there were a couple of quotes that really stood out to me one of them is you said native people are always in place and that really struck me very powerful and powerfully. And in this interview, you talk a lot about the, the notion of the reservation and the reservation as a moment of identity and then a lack of identity for indigenous peoples that are relocated to cities, mainly due to racist economic policies and, and the like, but that wherever people went, 
they were in place. What does that mean for boundaries? Um, is there a possibility for a, a lack of boundary to actually start to give us some solutions or some ideas how we move forth and start to talk about connectivity and challenging some of these things? And I think that starts to talk about this idea to self-determine futures and also embodied sovereignty. So maybe I'm just restating some of what you had already said, and that really isn't my intention. Um, but I do think with both of you, your work is talking about this idea of power and control over things that are commodified that, in, that maybe shouldn't be commodified. That being the land, but that also being people. I'm happy to say, first of all, for American Indians in the U.S. and First Nations peoples and in uh, Canada, we know we're in a bad relationship with the U.S. government. That is very clear and has been clear because it doesn't matter who the sitting president is. Or in in Haudenosaunee philosophies, we, we the president is always the town destroyer. It literally translates as town destroyer because the first president. Uh, Washington broke the first treaty immediately after the U.S. is formed. So there's a particular way that that bad relationship is ongoing, but it's one when you talk about um, the relationship about bounded enclosures, in a sense, are, are they necessary? I get a little weary when people are like anti-sovereignty, because in, in many ways, sovereignty is what's maintained our water systems in the U.S. Like, there is a particular way, like some of the most beautiful land in this country that has not been overdeveloped has come because we hold territorial sovereignty. So I really always try to make it clear. It's something I struggled with in my work. Um, is to make it clear I see land and water as connected, but how do we enact those relationships? But I never, ever want to undermine territorial sovereignty. I never would, because that's what helped us has helped us survive, that's helped keep our gathering areas, that's helped many of those aspects. So I guess for one thing, um, I think about Joanne Barker's work. She has For Whom Does Sovereignty Matter? Right? I think about like there's different ways of thinking about that. The nation state Westphalian notions of sovereignty are different from native nations sovereignty that preceded any, any of, any, any of uh, uh, the kind of nation state philosophies that get manifested at that particular time here. So um, my concern as a, a native feminist is always to make sure that happens, but always hold people accountable as well within those, those tribal systems, which have been impacted by nation state forms of governance, right? So when we're thinking about forms of governance, are there other ways of governance, right? Uh, I mentioned Heidi Stark's work because I think it's incredibly important for people to understand there are land use agreements. And those agreements were based on not overfishing so that each nations in our agreements with each other would uh, make sure that we were taking care of the land. So maybe it's like how you prioritize and what you think about versus just getting rid of I mean, I'm not sure about the word boundary, but just getting rid of those clear ideas of territorial sharing, because there were ideas of territory. That's one of the, the ways that Native people consistently get undermined, is though we don't have an idea of territory, when we clearly had ideas of territory 
and clearly had ideas of how that worked between our neighboring nations, et cetera. That's all in the archeological evidence and, and, and a lot of the evidence. It becomes an, a political expediency when it manifests itself through federal Indian law to think that we don't have territory, right? That leads to really bad outcomes and decisions in the Supreme Court. And it doesn't matter if it's a liberal Supreme Court or a conservative. It's, you know, the federal Indian law is schizophrenic. I, I guess I, I worry about thinking about the idea that we don't have territory or we don't have territorial sovereignty because there are agreements that must be maintained because it's about caretaking of the land. So maybe it's about prioritizing in that particular way. Just to, to raise a case, uh, you know, I raised the Oneida case with um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who gave the opinion on that, where she employed the doctrine of discovery, which itself is a legal fallacy. Um, and it, it, you know, she employed that to deny the extension of reservation areas through private property. So again, I highly suggest Meredith Palmer's work here. Um, but what happens in, in, this, in, in this case also is, at one point, the, the Superfund sites, they're a majority of the Superfund sites in the U.S. are located on reservation lands. They use that kind of boundariness to not clean up those Superfund sites and, and you know, the repercussions of that on Native bodies, that's where we talk about embodied sovereignty, are intense. So we have the highest cancer rates, the higher health effects, etc. So the Oneida offered to clean up one of the Superfund sites in the Erie Canal if the land was turned back over to them because they're fairly wealthy through casino funds, et cetera. So they offered to buy it, clean up the Superfund site, and the state of New York said no. So talk, I mean, how do you, you know, negotiate when people are not in the same, um, <laughs> same mentality or don't want, basically don't want Indians to exist, and part of our existing is owning and keeping those relationships to land. So in that way, I fully support territorial sovereignty because we need to maintain those relationships to land. And we're not going to do that by sharing with the U.S. government. That's really helpful. And in fact, um, it, the, the little that I do know, um, I would imagine that that would include uh, the deep connection to place, as you've mentioned mm -hmm. before, uh, and that place and land, although are two different things, yet they're tied uh, to one another. One of the things that I, I would like to just jump on briefly is um, the question of the role of the design fields. You know, I think this question comes up often. Um, and what I'm realizing is that perhaps it's not necessarily the, perhaps the agency of what design practices can contribute, but, uh, but the opportunities that design practices or folks in design fields can who they can engage with in terms of what communities and and i think that's probably the most perhaps uh, this is maybe a provocation in itself but perhaps the most misunderstood um, uh, forms of agency that the design fields can offer and what i'm trying to suggest is that perhaps it's not what we can do but rather who we can listen to and who we can engage with and what policies can can um, be informed through other kinds of engagement practices. I think design design schools, at least, and design practice have tended to be rather colonial in some of their practices in terms of we're the experts and we bring the knowledge. And while that's true, and design knowledge and expertise is important, 
I really appreciate what you were saying about um, who are we listening to and who are we including at the table? Um, because I think that's absolutely essential to contemporary design practice in terms of breaking down the stereotypes of what is the, the best designer. Is the designer the best designer the one with the biggest name and the biggest reputation? Or is it the person that can actually bring the experts to the table that lead projects into a productive and fertile new understanding of what that archetype or what that project or what that landscape could be? Yeah, Mishana, I want to come back to you on this because you, it struck me when you were uh, speaking about the aesthetics of, I think you, if I had it right, aesthetics as presence uh, and its relationship to power. And so as architects, we often are infatuated by the, the notion of an aesthetic, um, whether it's a vernacular aesthetic, a territorial aesthetic, or perhaps um, a political or capital aesthetic. But maybe just to come back to you and, and ask you, um, what's, what's your sense of this, of this kind of question, both by uh, not necessarily the design practices, but uh, more directly um, the notion of aesthetic and its relationship to place? I think that there's a particular way, uh, there's aesthetics that are meaningful. There's aesthetics that, um, for instance, if you travel in Pueblo uh, country, um, when, I, when somebody provides the gift of knowledge uh, to tell me what that design means and why it's in that place, there's often um, so much deep history, vertical history to the aesthetic design. And I, you know, I may only be told the scratching surface of that. Here I think of Jim Anote's work at the Pueblo Museum where they made these wonderfully beautiful, stunning maps of uh, at Zuni Pueblo. And when they made these maps, um, they did it with elders and the artists in the community, but not everybody knows all the knowledge in that map, right? So there's a certain mm -hmm. way aesthetics, I think, some may be available for people and it, some aspect of it may be available, but not the deep stuff that sometimes only certain people can hold those knowledges, right? So I, I think about the ways aesthetics also operate as these kind of teaching moments in the planning and in the design. Um, when you walk into the new buildings at the Seneca Nation, um, it's truly amazing. You have this big picture window of the whole length of the building. Um, with uh, the belt coming down, right? And that, that just asserts sovereignty from the outset in that particular design. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the colors a lot <laughs> uh, symbolize um, our colors of purple and white, which symbolize wampum, which are our belts and our treaty belts, which symbolize the core of our sovereignty and our political being and our relationship to the land. So, these things become incredibly important in, in the design, I believe, of places. Um, most recently, I, I, I am working on a big project at UCLA in relation to the Tomba and holding tribal listening sessions. So this might lead back to what you're saying. Um, sometimes it's just a matter of pulling people into a room and having a listening session rather than people love surveys. Academics love their surveys, right? But that doesn't, isn't always going to work. Sometimes you have to pull people into that room and into that very place to see what counts and what matters. 
So in planting these gardens, what came out for us was that it wasn't just what plants you're having there and using the place, the, the plant names, traditional plant names in that language, in this case, Tamba, but it's also a matter of what does it feel like to be in that place? What do you hear through the junkus grass? What do you hear? It, how does sound play a role in that, right? So it's often not even just about the visual aesthetics. It's also about the sound aesthetics. It's about that, that kind of effective feel of the aesthetics as well. And so when I was talking about kind of the effective mapping of aesthetics, that's what it can do for us. It can, it can help you have that feeling. And if you have that feeling, it also requires action and accountability. So I see aesthetics being able to do that. In, in a very important way. It's really, really fascinating, actually, and interesting. I've never uh, thought about aesthetics ranging from the body to the cartographic. In other words, it's, it's often, in, at least in my experiences in my field, um, maps aren't considered an aesthetic. And, and often we consider them a colonial act of power. Uh, to to demarcate certain areas as specific means uh, the forms of control, uh, the forms of power and legibility. And we know that maps. Oh, um, I agree with that. Yeah, they yeah. are a form of power. <laughs> no, no, no. I, yeah, yeah. But but what I I never I had never thought of the term aesthetic that can range from from the body, the earring to the body to the cartographic. Um, pretty, pretty compelling uh, and, and pretty provocative, at least in, in our world. And you would, you would think that that would be a natural tendency to like uh, put that together, but it certainly hasn't been. Yeah, I guess I can talk about this in sort of two streams. One is in terms of sort of my own research approach, again, sort of bringing video in, which Michonne, I think gets a little bit at trying to convey these landscapes in a different way. Um, where you get a sense of the soundscape as well as um, sort of the different components, the way the light hits, the different, the mood that's created. And a lot of my work is sort of bringing these landscapes together within an installation format. So I guess within my own research, this is something I've really been interested in exploring a little bit more that aesthetic um, of these spaces that really, you know, no one else, these are on private lands, you don't really get a sense of what is being incentivized. A part of that is sort of making this visible um, through my own work. I think that aesthetics has been really important for, say, the landowners who are involved in the, the management of these spaces as well. And that was sort of the subject of the, the piece I wrote for Wood Urbanism, which was getting at sort of like, who is the designer in this case? And it's, I, I, the title of that piece was Agents of Design, and really the agents are the landowners uh, in conversation. And this is where networks are important in conversation with a network of forest consultants in conversation with what the state wants to do in conversation with their grandchildren. Um, and sort of in through walking landscapes and, and sort of talking with landowners about what the aesthetic of their property is, you really see this being more of a, these these sites really being more like gardens, like ginormous gardens of that are that are forests that are managed over the lifetime of a forest that almost like Alice in Wonderland taking whatever sip of tea or pill she took to, to shrink down and your garden sort of rises up and all of your activity, the simple act of like picking a flower becomes a real like embodied labor process that takes days of planning and careful thought in terms of how that action 
uh, really will affect the land, like what's around it, uh, not just for that day, but for like the next 10 years, like taking down a specific tree in the forest will open up a forest canopy, you'll allow light down, this will set on uh, sort of uh, increasing, they'll set your landscape towards a different trajectory. And these are sort of those design decisions um, that I'm interested in capturing through and sort of maybe bring this back to the video practice that I've been using, really capturing sort of the labor involved in the management of these sites. So both giving a sense to those who don't have access to these spaces, what it's like to be there, but also the actual, the work, the, you know, focusing on people's hands on sort of bringing down trees versus sort of weeding and managing for invasive species. Um, and in that case, you know, designers aren't super present, like designer in terms of, you know, um, people who are classically trained, but there is a kind of design that's happening. And again, I think that planners and designers, not a lot of attention has been given to incentivized landscapes. And I think it really through engaging with these landscapes and their landowners really opens up some possibilities for us to learn from them uh, and be reflexive of how some of the larger policies that planners and designers are in charge of sort of putting forth are, are impacting these lands as well from the site to the to the territory. I, I really appreciate that, Julia. It it's, um, makes a lot of sense, actually. And one of the things that um, is a perhaps a coincidence, but but also a, a lovely way to to come to the towards the end of the series is that you've brought up the garden again, and in fact, in the first episode, we had uh, um, Lydia Calipaletti and Antoine Picon both discuss the garden um, as as a form of kind of a not necessarily a metaphor, but as a way in which we could discuss both uh, enclosures of environment, uh, forms of labor. And, and certainly this question of land and what's wilderness, what's wasteland, and, and, what's, um, and what's the so-called garden. Um, I just wanted to, to um, shift back over to, to Joshua and see if he had any um, concluding thoughts. You know, Julia, this discussion at the end about what you're referring to as video practice, I think is incredibly compelling. And it's interesting, as we were talking about your writing on incentivized private landscapes before we even started today, right? It's, it's a dense work. There's a lot of content in there. And I find a really compelling link between the way that you enumerate the kind of specifics of practice and policy, and then how you describe the video practice. Uh, I want to be particular with your terminology, the video practice of that narrative. I find that to be a beautiful link to, to Mishana's work, specifically in reference to the idea of storytelling. Um, and the role of storytelling that links us to our landscapes, that it is actually our narrative abilities that talks about histories and potentials. And Michelle, I hope I'm not appropriating and misusing your terminology, right? But this embodied sovereignty, this like independence in the landscape and this link to place that really starts to give a little bit of poetry to our lives, that a little bit of meaning in a, in a way that we become who we are because of the places in which we find ourselves and that there's a really meaningful connection in that. And I got so excited, Mishan, as I was talking about this idea of always being in place and having embodied embody sovereignty. I hope that I did not communicate that I think people should lose the control over their own land. That is, that was not what I was, what I was meaning. I think um, indigenous people absolutely should maintain sovereignty over their land 
And I think we have a lot of instances um, across the world right now, but particularly in our country, where injustice is being done in terms of people being removed from place. And if you look back, um, Mishani, you also talked about the link with slavery. I think policy that removes people from place and policy that removes place from people it are actually quite harmful policies and beyond people in our environments because it is that connection to the land that I think is quite meaningful. And I just to circle back, I think the notion of narrative, whether that is expletive or poetic, whether that is technical or prosaic, is actually quite telling in the fact that we become embedded in our world and I, it, gives the, it gives meaning to what we're doing. Mishana, Julia, and Josh, thank you all once again for being here. Wonderful discussion. This space has been sponsored by Actor Publishers and Urban Next. Subscribe to UrbanNext.net for access to exclusive digital content. And visit Actor.com for the most engaging publications on architecture, urbanism, and landscape architecture. Check the description box for the links to the content mentioned during this conversation. If you liked the episode, please hit the like button and share it with your network. Urban Next Exchanges is curated by Ricardo de Besa and myself, Marta Bouges. Feel free to contact us via email at inputbox at urbannext.net if you want to comment on the podcast or share your work with us. Thank you for listening. Thank you.